You know, sometimes you hear people say the expression, like, my life was such and such, and things were so bad until I found Jesus. And you know, there's, you understand the sentiment, you get it, right? But you also know that theologically, there's a little bit, something lacking there. Like, you really weren't even looking for Jesus, right? Like, yeah, you probably didn't find him. But then at the same time, you take the other theological extreme and you go, my life was such and such until Jesus found me. Well, like he always knew where you were, right? So when you're saying that, you're kind of trying to express something, a, a reality that it's, it's kind of between two points of tension. Because you know that there was an experience that happened in your life and something changed. And there was this other thing that happened that God was involved but, you know, whatever happened in the middle, you don't really fully get it. And yet between those two points of tension, it's kind of beautiful. Just like every note that's ever been played on a guitar has found its music between two points of tension. And that's where we're looking at today. Hopefully you'll find some music between two points of tension. But what we're looking at, please remember, it takes place in a synagogue in Capernaum. Now there's something about small town living that, you know, everyone eventually knows you. And it starts with your neighbors. Some of you live in small neighborhoods, and you know way too much about your neighbors. Some of the drama becomes almost unbearable at times, but there's something about being right there involved in everyone's life. Uh, I think in my neighborhood, all of my neighbors by this point, they probably all know my kids' names. Not because we've gone door to door and done the nice Christian thing to introduce ourselves, but they probably know my kids' names just from us shouting at our kids. Lucy, Lila, Ezra, Isaac. They even know our dog's name, right? Jed, because we're kind of loud and in the moment at times. Um, but that's the thing. When you live in that small town kind of setting, you know they see you. You know they hear you. You know they know what you're like. And some people get creeped out by that kind of scrutiny. They kind of get weirded out by living life under a microscope. But that's exactly where Jesus made his home base. You see, Capernaum was Jesus' home base. When he was rejected in Nazareth, he moved to Capernaum, which is a fulfillment of prophecy. It tells us in Matthew 4, verse 12 through 17, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles." The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this passage is quoted as a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. And what does Jesus begin to preach in Capernaum? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we've been talking about it as we've looked here in the Gospel of John. You know what a kingdom needs? A kingdom needs a king. And so from the time that he began his earthly ministry, so to speak, he preached the kingdom of God. In Mark 1, verse 14 and 15, 
Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He called his 12 and he began to demonstrate his power, giving them clues as to who he was. He taught with authority in Capernaum. Now they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. This synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus had taught many messages. This was sort of his home base. In fact, this is the very synagogue that what we're looking at here in John 6 this morning, where that takes place. Now, if you were to keep reading in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, you'd see how he showed his authority over sickness by healing, his authority over the spiritual realm by casting out demons. Mark, chapter 1, verse 27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And the people started to figure it out. Mark 1, 32 through 34. Now at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. In Capernaum. All of this was going on. In Capernaum was this paralyzed man. And his friends, they wanted to get him to Jesus. And they knew that he was there, but so did everyone else. The house was packed. And so their friends got creative. This guy's friend, they got up on the roof. They tore the roof apart. And they lowered the friend down on a mat with ropes right there in front of them all, right in front of Jesus. And right there in the middle of all this, Jesus looks at the man and he says to the man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, right away, this causes a stir. The religious leaders are thinking that it's blasphemy. In Mark 2, verse 8 through 12, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the, para or which is easier to the, para to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So... As it said there in verse 12, we have never seen anything like this. Consistently, his fame had been spreading. Now, the passage we're looking at this morning, remember this. Capernaum, the kingdom is at hand, and he's been showing his authority. What we're looking at this morning began not in Capernaum, but it took place on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the region of Tiberias. And outside, in the outskirts of the region of, of, of Tiberias, that's where he had been healing people. 
They were bringing all their sick and all their disease, and he was healing them, and he was teaching them. And after a long period of time with all of this consistency, he finished it off by feeding 5,000 men, not including their women and children, so possibly up to 15,000 people with five loaves and two small fish. And all of these wonders, it tells us that the people there in Tiberias were willing and ready right there on the spot to make him their king. They'd been seeing him work miracles all day long. But instead, he sent the multitudes away. He went up into a mountain to pray. He sent his disciples into a boat in the dark, into a storm against the wind. And then in the middle of the night, he came walking to them on the water. And as soon as he got in the boat, they were on the other side of the lake in, in Capernaum. Now, the next morning, the people from Tiberias, they who had been seeing Jesus work so many wonders, they started looking for him. And they finally found him on the other side of the lake at Capernaum. So what do you got? They all gather together in this synagogue. You have people from Capernaum that have been watching Jesus under the microscope, if you will. They've seen all of his wonders, all of his miracles, all of his authority. Now you have people that have tracked him down from Tiberias, who up there in a totally different part of town have seen all of his wonders, all of his power, all of his authority. They've all come together, and now here's Jesus in this synagogue, people from Capernaum with witness to so many miracles, people from Tiberias with witness to so many miracles, and yet, and yet, look with me in verse 30. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it at the, up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up the last day. Okay, so wait. So many miracles in Tiberias, so much power and so much authority, so many miracles in Capernaum, so much power and so much authority, and yet these two groups co converge there in the synagogue in Capernaum, and what do they say to him? What sign will you perform that we may believe you? 
What else? Like, pick one. What have I been doing in front of you my whole, like the, these last couple of years? What else can I do? Pick one. So many miracles. And they're like, but just do one that will believe in you. So obviously they see all the miracles. They just don't believe in him. And then so many miracles. And yet, as Jesus says in verse 36, you have seen me and yet you do not believe. So many miracles. And yet, look at verse 41 and 42. Then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? Okay. Now, when you read the Gospels, you got to make, you got to remember that the Gospels take place in Israel. In Israel, a place with so much culture, with so much tradition. And yet, what's interesting about Israel is that its culture and its tradition is directly connected to its religion. When you go to Mexico and you see somebody wearing a sombrero, just know that there's no religious significance to that sombrero. But when you go to Israel and you see a man wearing a yarmulke, there's religious significance there. When you go to Holland and you see somebody, if they still wear those wooden clogs, just know that there's probably not any religious significance to their fancy wooden shoes. But when you go to Israel and you see a man wearing a prayer shawl, or you see a man with like tassels coming from the corners of his garments, or you see a man with a flak tree bound around his wrist or on his forehead, know that there is a religious significance to that. So it's a culture and a tradition that is connected directly to their religion. Uh, Bo and I were talking this week. There in Israel, like all over the world, you have, like every time you go to get a job, every time you go to get a job and you fill out on your application, they want to know what's your race. You know, that's one of those things, like racial identity will always stay front and center if we're always bringing it up. But they say, what's your race? What's your race? What's your race? You know, and then they even ask you if you're, um, if you're Hispanic, like what specific aspect of that you are. But I don't know of any other um, race that's directly connected to a religion. But Jew is not only a race, but it's also a religion. So here you got a people that have a culture that's directly connected to their religion. They have tradition that's directly connected to their religion. They have a race that's directly connected to their religion. Everything about that society was religious. And in the middle of that, his ministry was commonly towards Jews with Jewish mindsets. And here we are. You know, what we're reading is taking place in the synagogue. So it's not just some like conversation that may be happening in a coffee shop. It's in a religious setting. Speaking with people who believed that they were an elite class, that they were the elect, that they were chosen, and therefore they were superior. 
They were superior. <laughs> I don't know why you weren't chosen, but I'm chosen, and therefore, like, I'm better, and you're trash. That was the, that was the Hebrew mentality. Everyone else was, well, lame to be a Gentile, fuel for hell. That's all you are, but we are the chosen. They were also very careful. So they had in this one sense, this sense of superiority. And then in the other sense, they knew what blasphemy was. They knew that God had given them the law and they believed that it was their responsibility to keep that law. And yet Jesus had been saying things that they had never heard anyone say before. Things that if they weren't true, they were blasphemy. Like when he said that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. You know, that term, that anointing, that's that expression for the Messiah. When he said that he was the fulfillment of that, well, it tells us there in Luke 4, 28 through 29, so all those in the synagogue when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. What? When he told the paralytic man that his sins were forgiven in Matthew 9, verse 2 and 3, then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. And when they began to plot to kill Jesus down in Jerusalem, in John 5, 17 and 18, but Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And a little later, we're going to see in John 8, 58 and 59, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. And one more. John 10, 30 through 33, I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up the stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works have I shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Now look, one thing that they were okay with, they had no doubt about was this part. You being a man. They got that. The part that they were having a hard time with was this, God. Okay, so the things that Jesus were, was saying, if anyone else would say it, it would be wrong. And either what Jesus was saying was true or it was blasphemy. And that's why they reacted so harshly. Here in John 6, in the synagogue in Capernaum, we just read him say, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. And they lost it. What did they say? In verse 42, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, 
whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? Like, we know his family. We know where he's from. And yet he's saying he came down from heaven? He's crazy. And that was a hard thing to get past. And on top of all that, he's talking about spiritual things. And the people kept taking him literal. Like in John 3, being born again, Nicodemus took that literal. Um, John 4, the woman at the well, uh, and living water, she took that literal. And then here, bread that endures to everlasting life. And they're like, give us a fancy lunch then. Um, Jesus had just given the first of his seven I am statements. I am the bread of life in verse 35. Later, we'll find in John 8, 12, that Jesus is the light of the world. In John 10, um, 7 and 9, we'll find out that Jesus is the door of the sheep, that he is the good shepherd in John 10, 11 and 14, that he is the resurrection and the life in John eleven twenty five. That he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him in John 14, 6, and that he is the true vine of John 15, 1 and 5. All of those I am statements are really big claims, and they point to someone who is far greater than just a mere man. Something that a mere man has nothing right, no right to say. I mean, if, if we were just sitting here having church service and suddenly someone stands up, if Josh stands up and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and we'd be like, oh, Josh, we got to escort you outside and have a theological discussion with you, right? Because that would be really weird. That can't apply to him. If anybody was to come in here and say, I have come down from heaven. That'd be pretty weird. Mo would have a nice dialogue out in the foyer. And you know he would, right? <laughs> Jesus is the bread of life all through this. When we read, I am the bread of life, I'm the bread that came down from heaven in verse 41. I am the bread of life, he says in verse 35 and 48. I am the living bread, he says in verse 51. And then we also read, the bread of God is he who came down from heaven in verse 33. Or this is the bread which, or who comes down from heaven in verse 50. And all the while, Jesus is talking about himself. But here's the problem. This is Jesus of Nazareth. They all knew him. They all knew him. Now look, Maui is a pretty small place. And the longer I live here, the smaller it gets. The more I get to know everybody. Um, you know, when you hang out with Uncle Greg, Uncle Greg will be like, hey, what's his last name? And then from there, okay, like, and he'll be able to pinpoint. No, he'll be able to tell the guy stuff about himself. Oh, you played ball with whatever. You know, it's, it's pretty, pretty impressive. Yesterday, we were at Olivia's birthday, and while we were there, Mo Jacinto and I were hanging out, and we were just talking story, and then Mo was like, he's like, yeah, 
So Tish's mom, she was my classmate. We used to be good friends. And I was like, no way. And he's like, yeah, I have, I have pictures of us as little kids together. No way. And he didn't even know that. And then he didn't know there was the connection. And then I think he went, like, they went up to Tish's house. And then he was like, what? No way. They'd lost touch with each other for a long time. And now all of a sudden, like, there's a bit of a reunion. Always a small place. They were friends growing up. But could you imagine growing up with somebody and then losing touch with them for a while? And then all of a sudden, like, reconnecting. And then suddenly they're like, I am the bread of life who has come down from heaven. You're like, oh, was that before we used to play ball or afterwards? You're like, this guy, who is, life's been hard on him. <laughs> you know, like, it's a lot to take. It's a lot to take. So these guys that knew Jesus, they knew him well. That's what they're saying. How is he saying he's come down from heaven? We know his mom and dad. He's been here. We've seen him. They have some, they got to get past their hangups. I mean, he's saying that he is that living bread that endures to everlasting life. And if you don't have that relationship with him, you're not going to see life. He's teaching that just as bread is basic to sustaining the body and physical life, that he is the way to eternal life. He is the one, he's the bread of life. And then in verse 35, he who comes to me. So like this person that they've known for so long, and now it's like, now I have to come to him to have a true relationship with God? Like everything about my life is religious. My ancestry, I value it because it's religious. My dress, the way, I, the way I present myself, all of that, it's all religious. And now he's saying that I'm not going to come to God unless it's through him? That's a lot to take. Sure, they've been seeing his miracles. Sure, they've been hearing his authority. But that's a big jump. And they had to get past their hangups. You know, you have to come to Jesus to know him. And the beautiful thing about coming to Jesus is that I know a lot of you have hang-ups as well. A lot of you have hang-ups of maybe your childhood or hang-ups of, you know, disappointment. Things that you were like, I, I thought life was going to turn out one way, and it didn't. And now you're, you're just, you're stuck. And you might... Be leaning to that way, like you're convinced about Jesus, but, but you can't come to him. You wouldn't like commit it all to him because you got your own hangups. The beautiful thing is, is that God is involved in getting us past our hangups. He doesn't say, hey, get past your hangups and then come to me. That's not the way it works. Eternal life is a gift of God that comes only through Jesus Christ. And there is a hunger, there is a thirst, there's a longing in the soul of, of people all over this planet. Every temple, every religion, every like ruin, every hayow out here, you know, on the, uh, you know, all of that. It just points that there's a longing that's deeper than just what this physical world is providing for people. 
Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The beautiful news of the gospel is, is that the hunger and thirst of your soul, it can be satisfied in Jesus. That you can be delivered from the emptiness and the dissatisfaction that are just that inevitable part of living a worldly life. I like what Augustine said. He put it in his prayer. He says, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. But see, they knew him as a kid. And now it's like, I have to come to you? Like, you're going to be the gateway to, like, a true relationship with God? <sighs> Some big hang-ups there. And therefore, in verse 43, verse 45, Therefore, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, this passage that we're looking at today, as I started out kind of mentioning, like, you know, some people say, until I found Jesus. And then the other are like, well, no, Jesus found you. But, like, he always knew where you were. You know, it's not like you were, like, missing. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, thank God, like, I found you. Um, it, it, it's not like that. But somewhere in the middle of that, you know that, like, what's missing is the right relationship. And when you start looking at it in Scripture, you go, like, wow, there's tension that's there. But sometimes that tension is by design. And in the middle of that tension is where the, the music can really be found. Just like every string on that guitar, every string on a piano or a violin or all those stringed instruments. But somewhere in the middle of that, that tension, it doesn't mean that you go like, well, there's tension here, so we don't need the tuning knob. We'll just go with uh, the string peg. Like that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't make it work. And so with that, I got to tell you that there's an issue here in this passage. We see it in verse 37, 39, and 44. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So it almost seems like in 37, the prerequisite of those coming to Jesus are those that the Father gives him. It says, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Now that, that's a, that same thing is kind of mentioned in verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So again, we come back, and it seems like it's like the Father gives me, those are the ones who's going to come to him, and yet those that come to him, or those that the Father has given, won't be cast out. Now, I don't have any problem with that. Like, if God saves you, like, he's going to keep you, and he'll raise, up, raise you up in the last day. But then this one here, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the idea of having this, this future resurrection of the righteous is those who come to God or come to Jesus. 
But it sounds like those that come to Jesus are the ones the Father gives or the ones the Father draws. And, there's, and so there's that. Now, as we get into this, I want to start by saying that there's a certain theological position that states that you cannot believe unless God saves you. Meaning that there is salvation apart from faith, that it's salvation unto faith. So you are saved so you can believe, but you wouldn't have been able to believe unless you were saved. I reject that. I reject that on the grounds of what I believe the scripture says. Now, logically, you might start thinking, well, faith is a good thing. And so if it's a good thing, it might be a good work. And you're not saved by works. Well, you know what else is a good thing? Existence. Because every good and perfect gift came from God. You know what else is a good thing? Consciousness. Sight. But that's not like a work. It's just a byproduct of coming from your creator. Faith is a byproduct of the soul's response to having that interaction with God. But nonetheless, you know, justified by faith uh, is what the scripture says. Anyway, um, there's a theological position that says that the Father doesn't want everyone to be saved. That there's a theological position that says that the Father will only draw those to Jesus whom Jesus died for, meaning that Jesus didn't die for everyone. That he only died for a select few, and therefore that select few are the special few, and the rest are the garbage multitude. And I reject that theological position. Now, there's also a theological position that says that mankind, since the fall, is altogether unable to respond to God in a positive way. Uh, It's an interpretation of where he says, being dead in your trespasses and sins. That mankind is unable to see their need of God or to have a knowledge of him. And I reject that to an extent. Not completely, because I partially agree with that. Now, let's back up. Dead in trespasses and sins. When did that happen? That happened in the garden. That happened in Genesis chapter 3. So how does it all work? Because God said in Genesis 2, the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in dying you will die. So something died in Genesis 3, and yet in their dead in trespasses and sins, what do we see? In the moment they took and ate that forbidden fruit, they died. And in Genesis 3, 9... Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now, did God know where Adam was? Totally, right? He knew where Adam was. It wasn't like, Adam, where'd you go? Oh, no, I lost you. He knew right where Adam was. Why is he calling to Adam? So that Adam could confess where he is. God was giving Adam room to confess on day one of being dead in trespasses and sins. And then Adam explaining when God said, why did you hide? Adam said that he heard the voice of God in the garden and was afraid. And that's why he hid himself. So even though Adam was spiritually dead, he could still hear God. Day one, 
dead in trespasses and sins, he still hears God. He understood what God was saying. So even in our fallen state, you know that you are created in the image of God? That you are created in the image of God. And being created in the image of God, you have something that's different than animals have. Being created in the image of God, God has created you with a capacity to have relationship with God. Now, that capacity might, there, there's a separation that's there, but death isn't an annihilation. It's only a separation. Our ability to hear God is still there. Our ability to respond to God is still there, both positively and negatively. In fact, like, there's still so much good in those that are dead and in their sins. Like I said, I exist, and existence is a good thing that's come from my creator. I have awareness, and that awareness is a good thing that's come from my creator. Like, I have a rationality, that I have a will. All of these things They've come to me from my creator and every good and perfect gift is from above. God said that it was good. He said it was very good. That was his description. And those things, those faculties still remain. So, okay. Our ability to hear God, it was still there the day Adam sinned. The ability to respond to God was still there, both positively and negatively, both by either accepting or rejecting. And in the book of Romans, it tells us this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. Unsaved people can understand and perceive the truth of God. And in that, they can suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Unsaved people can clearly see the truth of God revealed in general revelation. And it's so clear that that becomes the foundation of their judgment. It tells us in Romans 1 verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. <clears throat> They're clearly seen. You know what's amazing? Look at this. Godhead. That's a very specific word that that word even can refer to the Trinity. Did you know that 300 years before Christ came, the Greek philosophers were discussing the concept of the logos of God, the mind of God that became like this this creation, this creative aspect of who God is. That 300 years before Christ came, the Greek philosophers were discussing what they called the divine triad. Because in the sense of perfections, that human reasoning was able to comprehend enough about God in his perfections that it's like, there has to be a triad there. 
all of that is from that beautiful intellect that God has given to us that is good. But look at all of that information. That information alone isn't enough to save you. His eternal power and Godhead are understood and therefore they are without excuse. That's not salvific, but it is revelation. So whatever the Bible means by dead in sins, it doesn't mean that they don't perceive truth. It doesn't mean that they can't understand what God is saying to them. Adam understood it. Even though he was dead. So like I said, death doesn't mean annihilation. Death means separation. It means that but it does mean this. It means that man cannot save himself. You cannot save yourself. You can't sneak in some other way either. So what do we see from John 6? We see that if you aren't being drawn by the Father, you aren't coming to Jesus. How does that all work? I don't know, and I'm not going to deny it. Like, you're not going to be coming to Jesus unless the Father draws you. Okay. We also see that if you come to Jesus, he's not going to cast you out. And then we also see that those who are given to the Son will come to him. Now, sometimes, now that word right there, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word there in verse 44, draw, that's kind of the big hang-up word. What does it mean? Because draw, in that expression, it can mean to drag an object. Like in John 18, verse 10, where Jesus, or Peter drew his sword. He pulled an object that had no life in it at all out of its sheath and he chopped off the servant of the high priest's ear. In John 21, 6, we see Peter after Jesus had been crucified and he's like, well, I go, I'm going fishing. And he gets this net full of fish and he drags that net of fish through the water and back up onto the boat. And in Acts 16, verse 19, it talks about Paul and Cyrus, um, or Paul and Silas being brought into, not Cyrus, Silas, uh, being brought into judgment there in Philippi. But you know, at other times, it doesn't refer to being dragged in against your will. Like in the Septuagint, the Greek version of Jeremiah 31.3, where it says, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. To draw out of love. Or like what Jesus says in John 12, verse 32. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. The sense here, according to the Greek standard lexicon by Arndt and Gingrich, it's, it's describing a moral pull on the man's inner life. It means to, to draw and to attract. And so what you have to come up with here in John 6 is, is God dragging people against their will 
to Jesus? Or is he drawing people in accordance to that tension of them knowing that they've come from their creator and that there's something lacking, but he's drawing them past their hangups? Interestingly here, the context of being drawn in verse 37 is he who believes, if you see that in verse 35 and 36, or also, or everyone who believes in him in John 6, 40 and 47. And then one more down in John 6, 65. And there, he said, therefore, I have said to you, no one can come to me unless, the fa- unless it has been granted to him by my father. Granted. Okay, granted, you can come. But that's the same word that's found in John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, or he granted, to become the children of God. And then he reaffirms that to those who believe in his name. So you have they believed, you have they received, and you have they were granted the right. And why am I saying all this? Because there's tension in the passage. There's tension in the passage. And on the one hand, listen, you cannot have salvation apart from a work of God leading you, drawing you, opening your eyes, opening your heart. But on the other hand, you cannot have salvation without faith. So draw in John 6.40. I like one of the earliest church fathers that actually even talked about this stuff. Suddenly it became a debate in the last 500 years, but please know that that debate is the new kid on the block. For the first like 1,500 years of the church, it was very rare that it was discussed, but Augustine did discuss it. And so therefore he kind of becomes the hero of those that made it the main position in the last 500 years. But Augustine says this, if we are drawn or dragged to Christ, it follows that we believe against our will. So then, is, so then is force applied, not the will moved. A man can come to church unwillingly, can approach the altar unwillingly, partake of the sacrament unwillingly, but he cannot believe unless he is willing. If we believed with the body, men might be made to believe against their will. But believing is not a thing done with the body. Hear the apostle. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. And what follows? With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10.10. That confession springs from the root of the heart. And that's on his commentary on the Gospel of John. So today... I firmly believe this according to Scripture, that if you have God on your mind at all, that's because God is drawing you. I believe he's drawing you past your hang-ups. Sorry about this microphone. It's like something happened. I believe he's drawing you. Wow, it just got way loud. What are you doing over there? (laughs) Um... I believe that he's drawing you past your hangups, whatever they might be, that he's drawing you to Jesus. But will you come to him? Will you believe? And if you do, 
You can know this, that he'll never cast you out. Confess with your mouth that he's Lord and believe with your heart unto righteousness. There's tension in this passage as there is with many passages in the scripture. Uh, Folly would say, we don't need the tuning knob. We can just go on the one side. But when you see these paradoxes, just know that in the middle of the tension, it's God's design. And that's where the music rings out. Um, He's drawing you. But will you believe? Let's pray.